Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. Happy to have you here for the start of Season 2. Had a memory the other day. Took me back to the early 80s. I was working in St. Louis at the time. I remember driving cross-country, darkness and night, hearing the voice of Larry King coming over the Mutual Radio Network. Houston, hello! Well, not the best impersonation, but makes me happy to say it. And I thought of that because Larry always had this amazing connection with people all over the world. And I had that connection when photos started to pour into my email of places where people are listening to big questions. I'm saying the forests of Germany, Stockholm, shrimp cocktails in Indianapolis, frozen custard in St. Louis. People are listening to me all over the place. It just made me feel great, so I want to thank everybody for joining me on the journey. We're going to evolve a little bit, as you probably have noticed. The theme music's a little different. It comes courtesy from Brennan B. I loved it the moment I heard it. A few things are going to stay the same, like our sponsors. Want to thank ZipRecruiter, which has basically reinvented the way you can hire. All you got to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com, type in the job description. With a single click, you'll have qualified candidates within 24 hours. And I want to thank my friends at Squarespace. I'm grateful every time I look at my own new website, probably know I'm an old school kind of guy, but Squarespace makes me feel part of the new world, man. I'm telling you, the photos pop on that page. So clean, so crisp, so beautiful. If it can do that for me, imagine what it can do for you. Go to Squarespace and you'll be as happy as I am. And I couldn't be happier introducing our first two guests of season two. They're important guests because they're changing my life. My first guest is the CEO and founder of Spartan Races, Joe DeSena. I met Joe a while back at the Life is Beautiful Festival in Las Vegas. I was speaking there. And Kevin, the manager asked me if I'd like to do a podcast. I said, sure. And I walked into a room and met the host, Joe DeSena. I'd never heard of Joe before, never seen him before. He'd never seen me or heard of me. But as soon as we sat down, we really hit it off. And there was good reason. I was just entering act three of my life, And that means I know just how important my health is. And I know I got to start getting in a little better shape. And that's what Joe does. He takes people who are, like, this is no joke, 600 pounds. They come out to his farm in Vermont 
and they lose hundreds of pounds. And they are able to finish these endurance races that last for hours. What Joe does is amazing. And he basically grabbed me by the lapels and said, get in here. Well, it definitely took me to a new place right off the bat because I've never done an interview like this one before. It actually takes place in a hotel bed. And not only that, but midway in the interview, you'll see he's going to bring 88-year-old Dr. Beachy to lay in between us. So be prepared. There's going to be a moment where the audio is a little dysfunctional. It may feel like you're listening to mud, but walking through mud is exactly what they do in Spartan races. Well, they don't walk through it. They run through it. So push through it because, as Joe will tell you, when you push through the mud, you're better off on the other side. Well, about halfway through this podcast, you're going to see or hear or imagine what it looked like when Joe got me out on a Spartan course, had me try something, and I failed. But it was the perfect time to fail because running by was a woman on crutches She was born with spina bifida, little Misty Diaz. And I was able to reach out to Misty to ask her to train me for my first Spartan race. When you hear little Misty's story, you're going to want to pass this on to somebody you care about who's going through a difficult time. Because little Misty Diaz is the definition of of the word inspiration. So we got two people here who are impacting lives. First, Joe DeSena. Welcome to Big Questions. My guest today is Joe DeSena. Do I do? I do. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, 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 ding. ding, ding. <laughs> that was good, though. That was good. <laughs> now, th- this is already funny because we were looking for a place to do this, and we ended up in Marion, the filmmaker's hotel room. There was only one chair, and so now Joe and I are laying in bed side by side as we do this podcast. We'll have to somehow get the viewers or the listeners a, a, a clip of this, the video. In fact, we're going to get a picture taken. We'll get a picture. We're going to get a picture so they could they could see. And Dr. Beachy's in the room with us. And and we'll explain who Dr. Beachy is yeah. uh, later on. <laughs> Joe, as you know from my introduction, is the. CEO of Spartan. Yeah. And if Joe, I fall asleep, by the way, I just flew in from... Uh, you can't fall asleep. You run <laughs> obstacle races. Just saying. You, you make yeah. people go 72 hours without I'm sleep. I'm just saying. If I fall asleep, it has nothing to do with you. It's just... <laughs> go ahead. Joe has taken it upon himself to save my life. Why? <laughs> 
uh, you're a fun guy to be around. You know, I, I want my kids to hang out with you. And, um, and the other thing is I just like helping people. I've always just liked to help people. And, uh, I have a very clear, succinct mission. I want to change a hundred million lives. And the way I want to change them, I want to rip them off the couch. There was, there was an Amstel beer, uh, article somebody sent me yesterday, an advertisement where they're, um, talking about real life exercises, uh, getting yourself out of bed or the high knees you, you, you do on your way to get the newspaper on the driveway. And that really pisses me off because people should be sweating every day. They should be working hard. And uh, we have it way too easy. And, and am I allowed to curse on this thing? Uh, go go it's, ahead. It's fucking, it's fucking people up. It's fucking up everything. You know how much better Trump would be if he wasn't eating cheeseburgers? How much? A lot better. I mean, he's... he's com- Anyway, that's a whole other story. We don't have to get into politics here. Well, how did this all happen? If if no, if somebody is hearing your voice for the first time, yep. you have just stated that it is your mission to save a hundred million lives. Yes. Where did that come from? My mother. My mother in the 1970s in Queens, not far from where we're laying in bed right now. <laughs> she um she goes to her mother dies of cancer. My grandmother. She goes to a health food store. There weren't, weren't many health food stores back then. Goes into a health food store, happens to be an Indian guru, just landed at JFK, is in the health food store. She talks to the guys, this Swami Bua, becomes friendly with them, and buys into this whole crazy lifestyle. At the time, very crazy, right? 19, early 70s, Queens. Uh, I'm, she's going to become vegan. She's going to start meditating. She's going to go to India. She's going to do yoga. My father thought yoga was a food. <laughs> So hold it. She comes home. That's an Italian household. Italian household. And, and so sausage, a lot of food. sausage, peppers, um, cement, jail, and cannolis were the conversations every night. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, it was not. There was yoga and and meditation was not part of the narrative in the house. And so, what is that like? She comes home and says, "We're going to change the whole diet of the house." Yeah, the whole it, it, it transformed the house, and and for a while in a bad way, right? Because they started fighting. My father was going through all kinds of issues at, at the same time. It was a crazy time. I mean, if you saw the movie Goodfellas, this was ground zero for Goodfellas. And so it was, um, people were completely lost their way. Um, a lot of theft and prison time. I mean, it was just crazy. This in the neighborhood. In the neighborhood and in, in, in the house. I mean, it was just craziness. So, um, so they get divorced and she moves my sister and I to Ithaca, New York. And because uh, Ithaca was more open-minded. Ithaca is a place that, you know, there's more hippies and it, it would be open to this kind of thinking. So my sister and I go kicking and screaming. We don't want to get go to Ithaca. We want to stay with our friends in Queens, but reluctantly, uh, and we had no choice. We're young children. We go to Ithaca. How and old are you then? I'm 12. My sister's uh, probably nine. And um, And that was it. That was the beginning of the journey. But as I'm watching her go through this transformation. She's got monks in the living room. I get home from school. I got pictures of gurus on the wall with afros. Good fellows to gurus. Good fellows to gurus. That's right. That would be a good name of a book. Good fellows to gurus. And, and now are you starting to run and exercise, do yoga? I'm not really buying into it at 12 and 13 years old, because you got to remember, right? John Gotti's a, bre- a big prevalent uh, personality in the press. He comes from the neighborhood where I come from. 
all these guys have money and Cadillacs and respect and nice suits. And so in my mind, that's and what you I, got yoga. I got. I got yoga and branch sandwiches. <laughs> and I want to go back to the neighborhood. Right. I want to be one of these guys. Right. I want to get get out of Ithaca and go and go back. But I'm watching my mother transform all these lives. And and people. Well, how was she transforming other well, people? Lives? People that were overweight and and um, not active are all of a sudden becoming active, looking healthier and, and doing things because she's introducing them to a healthier diet and a healthier way of living. So this became her occupation. This became her mission. It wasn't like she didn't get paid for it. She did. This was her mission. She would meet somebody and well, then she, tra- she, I'm the same way. She'd pick up stragglers. So like, again, I get oh, home from man. school. Now I'm understanding you. Okay. Right? I get home from school and there's nobody there except for a monk in the living room. I don't know the monk. I don't know why there's a monk with a robe chanting. And but this was every day, right? And Or there'd be a couple of people I don't know, like, so anyway, what, did people from the neighborhood ever come up and see this? They laughed. They said, "Your mother's not." I mean, that was the joke. Your mother feeds you branch sandwiches. You got to. We got to get you out of them. My father got me an account at a local Chinese restaurant to sneak away whenever you were in the neighborhood or before my mother had moved there. Like, you you could go and you just sign your name. And so I started bringing all my friends. I was the big man, right? Because I take people to Chinese restaurant. <laughs> So, which is why my kids learned Mandarin, because I became friendly with the Chinese guy in the neighborhood. So I started to really appreciate that culture. So when I had kids, I called him up and I said, Danny, his name's Danny, Chinese guy. It's not his real name, real name that's his U.S. name. And, and uh, I said, I, I want to I teach the kids Mandarin. I want to I get a Kung Fu master to live with us. So Danny hooked us this is all making sense now to you right yes, because you, yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, know yeah. where this I'm came seeing, from I'm, right now, why now does I'm joe teaches kids mandarin right. why does joe into the asian culture it's because i was escaping from my mother and going to have chinese food every day and, and the escape was set up by the neighborhood so they were telling you okay you can escape from the gurus and they sent you to china and they sent me to china that's right that's right so you're watching, you're taking this in. It seems like there's like two, two parts of you here, the old neighborhood and new. And it new felt, age. it felt like that as a young kid, as a young kid, it felt like I had, I had almost to be a chameleon. I had to act one way in Ithaca, which was a, which, which was very um, different than, than the neighborhood, right? You, you had to have like your peacock feathers up in the neighborhood and show off and be a little tougher. And I had you know, leather bomber jacket. And then up, up in Ithaca, it was a lot more, you know, beads and, and robes. <laughs> like, I had a, like a split personality here. Now I'm beginning to see how you came to save 100 million people. I haven't saved them yet, but I'm, but I'm 5 million in. 5 million? 5, five million, million in. in. Yeah. I'm actually, I can't get over the hump because there's this one guy that just, it's like pushing a boulder uphill. His name's Cal Fussman. <laughs> Fucking impossible. <laughs> Every time I I'm, think I got him, he's got another bowl of ice cream in front of him. It's like by the, the story way, of Sisyphus. By the way, I'm exactly. the boulder. I'm the boulder. You're the boulder. By the way, um, normally when I do a podcast, we're on a run, we're climbing stairs, uh, doing yoga. Look what's happened. Cal with you, I got to lay in bed. <laughs> I gotta, the only way I get a podcast with Cal is lay in bed. <laughs> see, what I'm, see what I'm dealing with, Dr. Bishi? Yeah. Now, for those that don't know, yeah, let's we, let's introduce Dr. Beachy. 
do you want to do it in the way you normally no, should? You should. You should. In- so Dr. Bishi. So check this how, out. How did you meet Dr. Bishi? So I'm in the British Virgin Islands in the in in, in uh, with my cousin, my mother's sister's son. My mother and my mother's sister both died of cancer, just like their mother. And I'm with my mother's sister's son, my cousin. And he says to me, and this is the 90s, he said, uh, you got to read this book raw. Now, again, I was fighting. I was fighting my mother the whole way, right? I wasn't buying into this this thing um, the way I am now. And he gives me this book raw and I read it. And I'm fascinated. I read it one night. And I wake up the next day and I said, I'm going raw. <laughs> As I'm reading the book, but you got to remember, no mo- more Chinese, no more Chinese, no more no. P- pasta. That's it, raw, raw. And and as I'm reading it, but you got to remember, I've got at this point like 15 years of history with my mother trying to pound this into my head about this is the way to live and this is the way to eat. But I'm not listening to her. But I got the book, and it's like 15 years of memories and everything come oh. out in one night. And I said, you know what? Because she's dead at this point. She's right. I'm going raw. And the one question I had, which everybody listening right now is, I got the same question, is um, what about protein? That's the question everybody in America had. What about protein? And in the book, it says, you know, protein, it's a, it's a fallacy. This whole thing's a fallacy. You don't need protein. No, of course you need protein. But, but we're oversold. And Dr. Bisha could talk. We're oversold uh, this concept of protein because it's a business. It's a business. You agree, Doctor Bisha? So, so I don't know if they. I don't know. If, can we? It, it, it we may can't. be tough to hear. It may be tough to hear him. It may yeah. be tough to hear him. So, hang on. Come over here. Lay with us, Doctor Bisha. Am I getting a bed with us? <laughs> Jump in the middle. So now, how old are you, Dr. Beachy? 88 years old. So now we got 88-year-old Dr. Fred Beachy. I never thought that this would happen to me when I started a podcast, but we now have Dr. Beachy in on the conversation. And how long have you been raw, Dr. Beachy? Over 50 years. I can't pinpoint the month, but... I actually started eating uh, a lot of raw foods a long time before that. Haven't eaten any cooked food in over 50 years. And I was 200 pounds when I started, and I lost 70 pounds on a raw diet. Definitely slows down the aging process. All the athletes I competed with years ago, they're all, they've been dead for a long time. And uh, so, so theoretically, we don't need to be in bed right now. You can lay down. So, so, um, that's how I got into it. I read the book Raw. In the back of the book, I see Dr. Bishi's name. I call him. I said, listen, I'm sending your car service. I need you in the office right away. And he, and he jumped he jumped in the office. He came to the office. I tried to convince everybody in the office um, to go on his plan, which was the stuff my mother was preaching. He ended up coming to my wedding, which was great. Yeah, that was fabulous. And then uh, we became friends, and, uh, and I'm on this mission. And, so. and so where I see the, the diet come in, where did the exercise come in that pushed you to establish this, com- this company that allows millions of people to go through obstacle races? That- well, I mean, if you think about it, right, it makes perfect sense because so my mother's exercise routine was more based on yoga. That was a little... Um, 
especially at the time, a little soft. Here I was coming from this neighborhood of tough guys, same neighborhood you came yeah, from, right? Exactly. And so Spartan. So it's like I got I got the exercise thing with with the tough attitude, right? I got okay. I got okay. So I, you were blending the new age with the old tough. I'm, I'm blending the new age with the old tough because at the end of the day, it's hard to recruit people off the couch if it doesn't have some kind of like video game um, excitement to it. And, and um, it's hard to just go run a marathon. It's not motive, it's, right? It's, it's a little boring. Maybe some people want to knock that off the list, but, but to go out and climb obstacles and be able to define yourself as a Spartan. And, um, and then we weave in this narrative of, oh, by the way, we believe in plant-based food. Oh, by the way, we believe in yoga, right? And it works. Yeah. It works. Um, five million plus people, their lives have been changed in a positive way. So how did the race develop? What was the first race like? First race was um, in, in Vermont, and it was um, very uh, almost medieval in some ways because we were still trying to figure it out. The funniest thing about the first race, you don't know this, Dr. B, she is, um, I, I planted somebody in the woods. And I said, you want to, people need to be able to like um, uh, deal with adversity. Right. And so here they were running, and I wanted this person, because gladiator, to jump out of the woods and tackle them. <laughs> And so, and so that was the first, that was the first gladiator. It was awesome. And before I know it, the whole festival area was empty. And I thought, wow, I guess this race wasn't interesting. People aren't staying around. No, they had all migrated to the woods to watch this guy tackling the runners going through the woods. But the, was this it, a football player or something? Or this was, was he bigger dra- than a football? This was a giant guy with a <laughs> with a big um, jousting thing, and he would just tackle people and catch them off guard. And was well, he dressed like a knight? He from- he had a leather little thing on, like as if he was from Sparta. Barely anything on, no shirt, no. <laughs> and so runners he, are just thinking, yeah, you're the- running along. You're like, I just made it through those five obstacles. I'm this you're is- breathing breathing heavy, and then. Wow. <laughs> Knock right on your ass. And and uh, because I wanted it to be like, you know, like the old world, like, you know, we used to have tough times. Stop complaining about the coffee being cold or not parking too far from your uh, the grocery store. But the point was, the insurance company didn't really like that. So what happens to the race after that, after you're told, OK, we got it. We got to take the gladiator out. So we have that race, that first race. And I say to myself, I'm only going to invest 50 grand in this thing because I've lost way too much over, over the years in business and uh, all, 50,000 is all I'm investing. We have a second race, doesn't make money either. We have a third race, doesn't make money. Before you know it, um, I am completely underwater. I've invested more than the 50,000, but I'm seeing life. Change. I'm literally hearing people say, he changed my life. Yeah, I'm now, I'm into this. I want to do more races I'm getting fit. I'm going to bed early. I'm waking up early. Unlike the reaction you've given me, where you keep talking about ice cream and wanting to lay in bed, everybody else is buying into this. Like they say you got to meet people where they are. That's why Dr. Beach and I are laying in bed with Cal. We got to meet him where he is. (laughs) Right. We got to meet the people where they are. We got them. We got them. We got them. But, but so I'm losing a ton of money. This thing's not working financially, but lives are being changed. And so, you know, I bet you'd hear this from a lot of entrepreneurs. What ends up happening is I, I dig myself such a deep hole that I can't get out of financially that I have no choice but to succeed. 
I believe that most times an entrepreneur succeeds, it's because they have no choice. If you have a choice, there's not an entrepreneur on the planet that wouldn't quit and go do something else because building a business is fucking hard, really hard, really hard. Like you end up in the hospital hard, you know, Elon Musk, Elon Musk. He says it's like shoeing glass and looking into the abyss all day, every day. So. And, and so you're watching this thing influence lives and it's attracting more and more people, but yeah. you're going more and more underwater. And is there something that pushes you to a turning point? Well, the one thing that pushes me to a turning point is I got to stop losing money, right? It's like uh, getting poked with an ice pick every day. You want to stop getting poked. So I want to stop losing money. And then two is, um, oh my God, this feels really good changing lives. This is not like running a business like I've done my whole life where you're just making money. This is like, I wish the government would just pay me to do this because I like, this is my mission. And when you start, how long was the race? Because I know some of your longer races, the Gogis, they don't even have like a finish line. You you determine the finish line. It could be two or three days later. Or two or three months. And we'll nobody, nobody has, knows. When you start, you have no idea what so, the obstacles so are, when it's going to be done. We created a laddering system, right? So what I found when I raced, I'd been racing for years, was you come out of hibernation around Christmas time. Right. You ate a bunch. Right. And um, you, you want to do something shorter distance. So we got a three mile race. Then around the summer, you're looking to really look good on the beach. So you're ready for like a mid distance race. <laughs> this is my plan. Go ahead. OK. <laughs> so now we get an eight mile race. So then later in the season is when you do what you want to do. You really go for it. We put a 13 mile race together. So a half marathon. But then what we found, just like Maslow's hierarchy, was there are people, there's a small segment of people that really want to go for it. I wanted to go for it. I wanted to find out what could I do. So I went and did the Iditarod in Alaska, but I did it without the dogs, right? I was the dog in that in that example. And so- Hold it. How, how did you do that? It's a whole other story. We'll do, okay. we'll do it for another time when we lay down. But, but um, <laughs> the, the, um, the point was that I sought a level of, of, of the, I wanted to determine what I was made of, what, what I was capable of. And so I know there's a segment of the population and the Spartan population that wants to go beyond 13 miles and really wants to test themselves. So we created uh, the death race, we called it, or a gogi, um, two different terms. A gogi was the term they used in, in ancient Sparta, where they took children at seven years old and trained them for 13 years. And they trained them so hard, and this is documented, they trained them so hard that that uh, many people would say back then, those friggin' Spartans are going to war because it's easier to be at battle than it is to do the training they do. In other words, the training was so hard, yeah. the way they lived, that they wanted to go to battle because that was a break. Let's right? and, go to the tropics and have a vacation. <laughs> so so agogi is the term we use for, for this really high-level race where we torture people for 72 hours and the idea is um, self-realization. You know, can you take yourself to a place um, where uh, self-actualization, where you take yourself to a place where uh, you're just above it, you're above it all. You're, you're completely content with yourself. And by the way, this is woven into what my mother was teaching me. 
right? She was fasting for 40 days like Dr. Bishi. She was meditating for 30 and 40 days. She introduced me to a guy named Sri Chamnoy. I'm, I'm sure I'm botched. Oh, yeah, but, he's a long-distance runner. Long-distance runner, Indian, uh, put on, puts on a 3,100-mile race um, in, uh, in Forest Hills, Queens. Um, and the idea is, can you push yourself to a place like you just described with the Navy SEALs mm -hmm. that um, anybody else looking in would say is impossible, but uh, no, it's possible, right? The human body's, uh, I found myself doing these long things, but I found myself that you, when you think you're done and you can't take another step, you have eight days left. It's kind of like holding your breath underwater. You've got a lot more breath than, than you, you realize. Think. Exactly. Especially if you're on raw food. What's your... Can I get a green juice, by the way? Can you pass me a green juice. <laughs> what does it feel like to you see, seeing people like tattoo Spartan to their bodies? Well, we got about 10,000. You don't, we got to get Dr. Bishi a Spartan tattoo, but um, <laughs> no. I don't know if you'd be up for a tattoo. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> Reluctantly, he's in. We'll get you a raw tattoo. You know All what right. I mean? <laughs> I, um, it's amazing. There's over 10,000 people with tattoos and, um, I would much rather see people defining themselves as Spartans than defining themselves in the ways they currently do, right? I mean, you get caught up in nightclubs, you get caught up in all the silly stuff in this world. And so if we can get people more grounded and healthy and pushing limits, um, I'm doing my job. Well, my, my first race is going to be in April. Really? Yes, the stadium race. So that's just what you're talking about, the three-mile race, the sprint. Sprint, yep. And I understand there's a lot of steps. Yeah, there's a lot of steps. Um, you're going to be going up and down the stadium. Quite honestly, um, I don't know if... Oh, I got to use the mic. Quite honestly, I don't know if you could make it, Cal. <laughs> you, um, I, I mean, we go all around the world. We're in 42 countries and we take children. We take elders. There's nobody um, that can't do this, but um, I'm not sure this is for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's a challenge it's just that you i don't like you're just different well i know i'm different <laughs> but we've climbed mountains together we have climbed mountains together slowly <laughs> well first you say like you get a 4 a.m wake-up call from joe let's go climb the mountain you climb the mountain you're happy. And then Joe says, but it wasn't fast enough. I'll improve my speed. And I know it's going to be something else. You know what he said There's to me? There's going to be a gladiator up there someday. <laughs> you know what he said to me, Dr. Vichy? He said, you got to understand, I like all this stuff. I just like to do it at my own pace. I don't like any That's boundaries true. or this or that. That's and I true. said, well, the whole fucking world likes it that way. I mean, you don't want budgets when you run a business, right? Like what if... What if a woman said, yeah, I'll have a baby, but, you know, nine months, a little too tight. Let's push it out. To, <laughs> let's make, you know, let's do a little slower. Like, it just doesn't work that way. Life has boundaries and deadlines, and that's what makes it hard. You can't, you can't just keep slipping through life, Cal. You got to start to get serious. I got to start. I've been serious for a long time, maybe too serious, but I have not exercised the way I should. And that, that's why it was great that we met and that you're taking me on this journey. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have you. I just, I think it's time um, we get off the bed 
<laughs> I think it's not. You got to come outside the box. Once you come outside the box, there's so much out there. And a lot of people are always talking about exercise. When you eat the right type of a diet, leave out the processed food, exercise becomes so much more efficient and easier. You don't have to train as hard. It become, you become such a more efficient biological organism. But once you start to nourish your body correctly and leave out the processed food, interferes with healthy physiology, then exercise becomes fun. Even if you're going into extreme challenges and if you, your body's a very sophisticated biological organism, it has a very specific way to operate efficiently. Once you do that, you can really give you the endurance. You're talking, you're talking, you're talking to a wall right now. He, all he hears is ice cream. <laughs> you're going through this whole thing, the scientific evidence you have. You, you, you've only eaten raw fruits and vegetables 50 years. He's hearing Haagen-Dazs. <laughs> Joe, I am getting out of this bed and I'm heading for the steps. I will be prepared. All right. You got to walk up the steps, not down the steps. <laughs> I'll see you on the steps, Joe. See you on the steps. That, that, that's going to be exciting. All right, we're going to get to little Misty Diaz in a moment. But before we do, I want to mention the people who bring this podcast to you. ZipRecruiter. I met the guy who started ZipRecruiter. I know what he went through to get it off the ground. And I know what he accomplished. He basically reinvented the way we can hire. All you got to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com. Type in your job description. With a single click, you'll have qualified candidates within 24 hours. And if you type in ZipRecruiter.com backslash Fussman, you are going to get a free trial. It doesn't get any better than that. Also want to thank my friends at Squarespace. I'm grateful every time I look at my new website, CalFussman.com, photos pop off the page, copies clean, crisp. You know, I'm an old school kind of guy, but whenever I look at my website on Squarespace, I feel at the top of the world on the internet. So I encourage you to go to Squarespace.com, type in the offer code Fussman, and get a new domain name or website for 10% off. You're going to be glad you did. You're going to be as happy as I am. Now, here's the backstory to how I met little Misty. So, Joe invites me and my dad out to one of his races in California. We go out, we're wandering around with him watching people chuck spears and turn over tires and they're going over walls and Joe takes us to this place where there's a mud pit that all the racers are trudging through and after they get through this mud pit they've got to climb this 45 degree incline using a rope to pull themselves over. 
And Joe says, Cal, why don't you get up there and do that? I'm looking at it. Doesn't look that hard to me. All you got to do is grab the rope and it doesn't look any more than 20 feet. You just got to go up and get over. Look at my dad. Now Joe's got the crowd going wild. Cal, 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 everybody's chanting. Cal, Cal, Cal. So, of course, now I got to do it. But I haven't gone through the mud pit, so there's no mud on me. And I'm thinking, okay, I'll give it a shot. So I go to it. I grab the rope, two hands, put my first hand forward, grab the rope, take a step, take another step, another step, just pulling myself one fistful at a time. And now I'm getting to a place where I'm thinking, all right, couple more and I'll be over. So I grab for it, lean forward, and that's it for Cal. The slippery wall has done him in. Just takes me all the way to the bottom. And I get to the bottom and I realize, you know what? There's some technique involved in this that I better learn. My dad is like shaking his head. And I know that I'm going to have to find somebody to teach me this. A little later, I run in to little Misty Diaz. She's not hard to miss because she does these obstacle races on crutches. She climbs a slippery wall with crutches. If she can do it, I know she can teach me. So we get into a conversation, and she agrees to be my trainer. I just wanted to let you know how we met because you're going to find out what she means when you listen to this next segment. And if there's somebody you know who's going through a difficult time, you might want to pass this on to them because little Misty is going to make anyone see the world in a different way. Here we go. Now, the reason that Little Misty is amazing starts straight from birth. So I know a little of her story, but I'm just going to ask her to describe it for you so you can be just as astonished as I was when I first heard it. Little Misty, what was it like when you were born? So I was born with spina bifida. I had my, my spine was completely exposed and all of my organs were on the outside of my body. Uh, My damage happens to be at L5, which affects my walking and my bladder and my growth. So, yeah. (laughs) So when you say all your organs are Mm -hmm. born, were born on the outside or came out on the outside, that means your heart was born outside your body. Um, most of my bladder, my kidneys, um, from pretty much from the waist down. I think it was exposed, but not to the severity. Okay. And so it takes about a year for the doctors through numerous surgeries to get 
everything that was outside inside. And how, how does that leave you as a, as a kid? Can, can you walk okay? What was it like? So um, once the process of putting all of my organs back inside of my body, um, there was a, once I was released, it was premature on top of that, but um, about age one and one or two, I had a surgery that broke everything that was broken from the waist down. And I was put in a cast with a handle on both sides. And that was to correct my walking. And my parents would just carry me everywhere. <laughs> so they were carrying you around like a pocketbook. <laughs> pretty much. And I, I pretty much got around in a red radio flyer, a wooden one. And they would just transport me in that. And when you went to school, what was that like when you went to elementary school? So when I went into elementary school, I had a really cool walker with a, a basket in front. And uh, I would do my best to just fit in. And it became apparent that that wasn't the case by kids pointing at me and making it clear that I was different. And does that change over time? Do people get to meet you and discover who you are and befriend you? Or do you feel like an outsider? Um, I felt like an outsider for sure. I, I didn't think anything was wrong with me because I didn't know any different. But when kids started, um, you know, doing a little bit of bullying and making gestures and points, and it kind of became apparent that I was different and that I didn't know how to handle explaining that I had a disability. Were, were they actually like physically knocking you over? Um, they would take my crutches and like run with them because they knew I needed them. They would call me like Herman Monster because I at the time I didn't walk with crutches yet. So I would walk with a sway because I didn't have good balance. And um, they would, you know, kind of throw things when I was walking to kind of make me trip. They, they didn't know. And back then, unfortunately, you know, classes didn't have mandatory, um, edu- you know, disability awareness. So my parents had to get a lawyer and we won a case to have um, somebody come in and speak to the entire school about disability awareness. And after that, I started becoming a, a little bit, I fit in a little bit more because kids were aware that, you know, there was nothing, I wasn't contagious that, you know, I think that was. So they were trying to push you yeah. away. Yeah. Yes. They were like scared of you. Well, they didn't know. And I, you know, that's still to the day, you know, we have to educate the kids because you know, by bringing awareness, they didn't know. And once they knew by bringing in a doll with a disability and extra pair of crutches for them to touch and feel or an extra pair of leg braces, which I wear those and I use leg uh, crutches, then they could see one-on-one that it was okay. And those were just aids to help me. Were there other people who came up to you and helped you out as you were going through your schooling? Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know anybody else with a disability, but I did have, uh, I ended up making friends. I was always really good at making friends. Um, I would have like a, a coach and, um, he would pull me out of math class, which I was really grateful for. And the kids thought it was really cool that I'd be good private lessons. And this coach was an adaptive PE coach. Uh, Jim Wooster was his name. And 
he would take me to a set of stairs and he would say, okay, stay right here and let me have your crutches. And he would run to the top of the stairs and he would say, okay, now put one foot in front of the other, hold on to the rail and meet me at the top to get your crutches. And we would do that. What was it like the first <laughs> time he did that? I thought this man is so mean. Like, what kind of teacher, what kind of coach is this? Like, don't you know I need these crutches? Like, why are you leaving me here at the bottom of the stairs? <laughs> and so you're like crawling with your hands and legs. Yeah, I, uh, were, I think, were you holding on the railing? I think it was a little bit of both. Uh, you know, I was, I had barely transitioned from a, a little walker to these little tiny crutches. And he was just trying to get me to be comfortable on them and to to learn how to use them to my best ability. So I think if I got tired, I would start crawling up the stairs. And he would allow it. He'd say, that's fine. Just get to the top. And so you get to the top. Did he have other things that he wanted you to do once you got to the top? <laughs> so once we got to the top, he'd, he'd hand me my crutches and he would tell me to take a little break. And then if we didn't do it once or if we didn't, go up those stairs once or twice, he would have me go back down them and teach me how to properly go downstairs with crutches. And he would have me do other assignments like stand against a wall with the ball and hold my stability, uh, eye coordination. And then slowly we'd go from against the wall to away from the wall without crutches. <laughs> and, and how long did you work with this coach? Uh, I want to say like three or four years. Three or four years we were together, at least once or twice a week. What did that teach you about life? It taught me that these, that things were going to be hard, but there was always a way around. There was always a way to get, to get over that obstacle. Those stairs were, were an obstacle. And at first I was fearful and I didn't know the outcome, but I knew that if I stuck to what he taught me, that I would make it to the top. And I, it taught me about teamwork because I looked up to him and I listened to what he said. And the outcome was always some great achievement because I listened to what he was teaching me. Well, it, now I can understand <laughs> how you became my trainer <laughs> because you understood at a very early age the, the power of somebody helping you through obstacles. Taught me patience, which is still something really hard today because I had to be patient. I, I wanted him to bring me my crutches so I could lean on them, but that wasn't the case. And as time passes, like what, what's your life like in junior high school? So in junior high, unfortunately, I was pulled out of school. Um, I, on top of having, you know, my operations, uh, I ended up getting valley fever, which really took me out for over a year. And the school stepped in and said, you're missing too much school. So my parents uh, homeschooled me and I was doing homeschooling at home and working on getting better and, um, you know, having a disability. And on the side, I would uh, play the piano. Uh, I even got into guitar as well. And, you know, I'd get really good. And I, you know, I, I did, school was okay. Uh, I wasn't great at school, but I was great at playing the piano and I was really good at playing guitar. Well, what, what happened with the piano and the guitar? Um, I would do really good. And unfortunately I would have to have another surgery and I, we would do the whole pre-op thing and, you know, get really healthy before to our best of our ability. And 
I would have surgery and we would deal with those challenges. Um, I, you know, I had a surgery on my spine where it was 19 hours. And I remember waking up in ICU for them to tell me that they didn't finish. So those are the type of obstacles that, you know, being in junior high, just trying to go to school and do homes. But here I am in homeschooling and trying to play the piano, which I was really good at and I loved, but it just, it became too hard, too much. As you're growing up and you hit like your 20s, what's what's your life like then? Because I imagine that you got to get a job. You've got to take care of your health insurance. Yeah. What, what were you doing? So, you know, I always wanted to work and, you know, I started working. My first job was Target. I was like 16, maybe. So here I am 20 and I'm working a retail job and I'm just trying to save up money. And I, you know, I just want to live on my own. I want to be independent, what 20 year old doesn't. And, um, you know, I'm just, just trying to be just normal as possible. But little do I realize that the expense of having to pay for, you know, my co-pays and, you know, my medical supplies, it, it, it's, it's not cheap. <laughs> no, and, and you're looking at a lifetime of this. Yeah. How many surgeries would you ultimately get? 28. 28 surgeries. 28 surgeries. Any idea like how much all these surgeries would have cost? I think they, what do they call a, they, I've, I've been referred to a million dollar baby. Sounds like a lot more than that. I think, that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Where well, you're, you're working, you're trying to figure out your way. Are, are people like respectful of you? Do they understand all the good qualities in you? Or when people see the crutches, do they see you as somebody who's disabled? You know, one thing that's really been a huge, which has been a really great thing is uh, about me and, you know, having my disability is, I've always had a really good personality and that's what really shines because when I go to apply for a job or something, you know, I mean, let's be real here, you know, here I am with a disability. I, you know, they assume that I'm extremely limited to certain things, but having that personality and being that open and just happy person uh, shines a little bit more than the disability. What, what does that teach you about life? Having that personality? Having a really, having a bubbly and energetic personality and positive really shines and it allows people to not see the disability first. It allows them to see my smile. It allows them to see how happy I am. (laughs) And and for anybody who's trying to visualize you, how tall are you now? I'm 4'4". 4'4". And when you weigh yourself, scale doesn't hit reach 80 pounds, does it? About 78 no, pounds. 78 pounds. <laughs> You're working and uh, still having operations. Yes. And then I know this is going to lead to like a, a fateful moment in your life. You get married. Yes. And then a few things happen. There's operations and the marriage doesn't work out. And where does that leave you? You know, it leaves me where... I'm on my own again. And here I am trying to figure out how to live life with this disability, which I'm limited at the time because of all of the surgeries and the setbacks with that. And I'm just doing my best to be independent. So, you know, I'm going through this divorce and I'm living in an apartment here in in Long Beach. And 
I just find myself really uncomfortable and unhappy with myself. You know, I had my 28th operation and the doctors at the time were just giving me anything and everything to just not be in pain. And it just... What did that do to you? It was, it was a mess. <laughs> um, mentally, it, it really put a fog over me. Like, I didn't really start realizing the colors of things until about six years ago. I just felt like I was in this really, this fog. Like, that medicine was really just putting this cloud over me. Oh, this for all these years. You've yeah. been taking medicine and medicine oh, medicine. I was given medicine as soon as I was born. And so you <laughs> didn't understand what a life was without medicine. Yeah, I didn't know. I just had this routine of taking my medicine because that's what. Were you taking like a lot of pills in a day or? No, about 20. 20 pills a day for mm-hmm. all these years. About 15 to 20 a day. Mm-hmm. And then you find yourself in your apartment. Uh, at that point, you don't have a job. <laughs> no job. No husband. No husband. Uh, and cash is kind of low. You know, I had my 28th operation. I'm sitting in this apartment across from the beach. And, uh, you know, the husband's gone. I'm sitting there having a nurse, a male nurse at that, come uh, maybe twice twice a week to help me because the 20th operation failed. And the doctor ended up making a mistake. And, um, you know, I don't have family I can really lean on at that point, at that time. So uh, I asked my landlord if he could give me an extra month. And I literally just sat there with very little in my apartment that was left. Uh, I called Salvation Army and they took whatever they could. And I think I kept maybe two suitcases worth. And I said, okay, I got to figure this out. Either I'm going to just sit here and be miserable or I'm going to do something about it. I was already uncomfortable. I mean, what's, I had already lost everything. How, how bad could it get? I could only go from up from there. <laughs> and so what was the moment that turned things around? I knew that I needed to get off that medicine and I knew that I needed to make a change. And if you know me, I'm pretty much all or nothing. If I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it all the way. Maybe not the right way, but I'm going to do it that way. And, um, I was, I was driving, literally driving, and I saw a sign, a sign that said uh, a 5K walk. But I thought, well, I don't know how to do a 5K. So let's start with the basics and let's start waking up at 8 a.m. For me, that was extremely hard to do. And let's start walking to the mailbox. So I kept that routine for a couple of weeks. and you just walking to the mailbox yeah. and back. Then would you walk to the mailbox Again or just once? So, you know, it's so funny because I live so close to the beach and I'd like never walked to the beach. Um, so I like the first week I would walk to the mailbox and I started seeing colors because by then I had cut my medicine down substantially and um, I started noticing things pop out, like clouds actually stand out that were like blue and white. And then uh, the next week I would walk to about a block closer to the beach. And I'd walk back, not knowing if I was going to be able to make it back, but I did every time. I stopped multiple times. And then uh, about three, four weeks in, I was walking to the beach and back. And what happened when you went to run in that 5K race? So uh, You got your crutches with you. Are there other people out there with crutches? 
And I was the only one. <laughs> so you show up to run a 5K in, with your crutches and what happens? So let's make mention of this 5K. This 5K, I showed up. Uh, I didn't have a dime to my name. I showed up. I went to Payless two days before and bought running shoes from Payless. And uh, I had a camelback that was given to me. And uh, I filled it with snacks and water. And I showed up in a purple tutu and a white collared shirt, full makeup and pigtails to this 5K. And I didn't know anything. I didn't know what was going to happen. I just knew that I wanted to accomplish this. And uh, I ran when everybody ran and I stopped when everybody stopped. (laughs) How long did it take you to? I probably took me about a good hour, at least, at least, if not a little bit more. But I wasn't the last one. So. That's, uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know how I wasn't the last one, but I wasn't the last one. What did it feel like when you finished? Um, I started feeling this gratitude that was from my gut, my happiness that I just wanted to share to the world that anybody could do a 5K because I just did a 5K. <laughs> and, and what about the, the pain medications? Did you immediately go off them? Um, I had cut it down to one. One medicine, which I'm still only on one medicine. And and so no more clouds? No, I was seeing colors. I was seeing like, it, I was seeing things for like the first time it felt like. Like that fog had just been completely lifted off. And so where does that take you? Because you now can see clearly and you're feeling really good having accomplished this. What's your next step? Although you're still... In this apartment and you don't, yeah. you don't have much money. How, how are you going to get out of that? So I had, uh, I think this maybe a couple of weeks left in that apartment. So uh, I figured that I would stick to the consistency and I would, I would either sleep in my car or I would sleep on friends' couches. So I would go to my friends and I would ask them if I could wash their dishes, uh, walk their dog. And I even house sat for a couple of weeks and exchange, I slept on their couch for three months. And I lived off a couple of hundred dollars and maybe one meal a day. And uh, I would take naps in the park in my car and I would keep the consistency of me walking with those running shoes from Payless. And uh, I would take my laptop to a cafe and sign up and look at different races that were going on in the area. (laughs) <laughs> what what does it do? Like something is obviously being imprinted in your brain. Keep walking, keep yeah. walking. What does that do to somebody who may be sitting somewhere listening to this and is got something to overcome and they feel like they can't overcome it? It's just taking a walk, the way to start. I think it's just taking the first step and continuing continuing that process. But so once you could take one, then you could take two. If you could take, take two, then you can take three, and then you yeah. can just keep going. Even if you have to write those steps down, that's what I did. I literally wrote down on with the pencil and a paper. Misty ran or walked half a mile. Then my goal the next day, I'd write it'd be a mile. So, <laughs> okay, so you did the five k, which is about three miles, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And you have figured out how you can get by by washing dishes. And then after that, what happens? 
Um, I actually got a phone call for my health insurance because uh, I had health insurance through the state at the time. And they said I had a free membership at 24 Hour Fitness. So I was like, this is awesome. So uh, I started walking to the gym, uh, which was really close to my house. And um, I remember walking to the gym thinking, not seeing anybody like me and not having really anybody to really help me. And uh, I started working out and training for another 5K race. Now, what's interesting, I remember you once telling me that you never saw anybody with spina bifida. No, I met somebody briefly in my 20s. Like for the beginning of your life. So you yeah. hadn't, you were thought you were like, you know, not that you thought you were the only one because you knew there were other people who had it, but you're, you were the only person that you could see with this disease. Yes, that's correct. I, I really didn't truly meet anybody with spina bifida until six years ago. And and so you're starting to to walk. Are you? What are you learning about yourself? I'm learning that I'm so much stronger than I thought I was. I'm learning that with consistency, um, you see great results. Um, I'm starting to meet new people. I'm starting to slowly go into this fitness community and be accepted and a part of it. You know, that's an interesting point. <laughs> When people in the fitness community see you on the crutches, <laughs> how how do they react? There's very various uh, reactions. Is oh my god, look at this girl with crutches, with hot pink crutches. She's on a treadmill, or uh, wow, this this girl is beautiful and she's lifting this tire. Or uh, what condition do you have? <laughs> so, but it, it almost sounds like the exact opposite of when you started elementary school and people thought you might be contagious, so they wanted to keep you away. Yeah. It seems like you're, people are becoming curious about They're you. They're curious and they want to know what I'm doing and if they can be a part of it or if I, they can invite me to their gym or you know, their 5K race that they just signed up for. And how does this lead to these Spartan races, which are um, among the toughest? I mean, it gets to the point where the founder, Joe DeSena, will set up races that are like 72 hours long. And there there is no finish line. Like the finish line is when Joe decides there's a finish. Uh, So these are designed to take you to the extreme how did that 5K lead you to these Spartan races? So after I was um, doing various jobs to stay on friends' couches for three months, I ended up getting uh, a little job and I got a better job and a better job. And uh, I moved into a small apartment for about four years. And um, what I would do is I would, you know, go on my laptop and I would email races I would go to their website and look for a main contact and I would introduce myself. Hey guys, I'm Misty Diaz. I ran my first race ever (laughs) and I would love to do it again. Is there any way that you could help me pay for my entry? And um, nine times out of 10, they would say yes. So uh, you're in. Yeah. Just get here. Just show up. Yeah. And slowly but surely race after race, which there were a lot of local races at first. Um, I met more and more people. And what was it about Spartan that attracted you? So I, you know, about a year into that, um, going from the 5K, I started training for a half marathon. 
after after my goal was after my first 10k, which was in San Diego. Um, That's six miles. So you're <laughs> doubling. Okay. I told myself after that 10k, I'm going to do a half marathon, and for some reason, I picked Yonkers half marathon in New York which actually I didn't find out until I got there that ended up being one of the oldest and one of the hardest uh, mar- half marathons in the U.S. Uh, for the hills. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. Um, so I started training for this half marathon and I literally went on social media and I, I put on Facebook in this running group that I was introduced to. Um, Hi guys, I'm Misty Diaz. Is there anybody who's willing to help me train for a half marathon? And uh, a gentleman named uh, Michael spoke up and said, meet me in Signal Hill tomorrow at 6.30 a.m. And I thought, oh my gosh, 6.30 in the morning. Okay. And, and I showed up at Signal Hill, which I ended up finding out really quick when I got there that it was all hills. And uh, I literally met this guy named Michael on this hill and I introduced myself and he said, okay, I'm going to train you for this half marathon. He did it and the lovingness and kindness of his heart. And one of the days that he was training me, he wore a shirt that said Spartan Race. And uh, I met him on that hill twice a week. And I eventually asked him, what does that mean? And from there on, (laughs) I actually PR'd at that race. Training with him, he Mm -hmm. really brought me to my max. Uh, I was able to do a half marathon in three hours and 22 minutes. Um, And I told him, once I come back from New York, you're training me for a Spartan race. And he even said, I remember, I've never trained anybody with a disability, but I'm willing to learn. We're going to have to make some adjustments and adapt, but we'll figure it out together. What did you have to learn to do? <laughs> so one day after my, one day on that hill, he had a, he gotten there a little bit earlier before I did. And he had set up a spear throw and he brought a tire. And I thought, what in the world? what are we doing? Um, and he's like, okay, I'm going to teach you how to throw a spear. And I thought, why? (laughs) And he explained to me that there was a spear throwing obstacle in Spartan race. And then he would teach me to flip the tire, which I can flip the one. I still have it in front of my door in my house. Um, he would teach me to have my crutches on my wrist and to prop them into the grass or the dirt, and to kind of use that as a stability and to flip the tire. So what's it like the first time you show up at a Spartan race? <laughs> it was miserable. Um, so I drove to this venue in Malibu in this desolate area, and um, I know absolutely nothing. I'm carrying a backpack that is maybe 50 pounds. Cause I'm preparing for every possible thing. And uh, I'm being told to jump into a school bus. Oh, and mind you, it was hailing and it was 27 degrees. Now I've, <laughs> so here I am, I'm cold. Uh, my crutches are sinking into the parking lot because the parking lot is made out of dirt. So the mud has caked up because of the hail. And I'm being told to jump on a school bus with the 50 pound backpack that I really can't carry. But I'm lugging it around. Only Seventy-eight <laughs> pounds, <Okay. laughs> and um, we're being shoved onto this bus, and I don't know why, but everybody's going that way, and so I, I jump on this bus, and uh, they drop us about half a mile from the venue, and I have no idea how. I think I even had to get help carrying the backpack, 
and uh, it was extremely slippery. And my crutches kept getting stuck in the, and stuck in the mud because it was raining. And um, I ended up meeting the team of the trainer who had been training me, uh, Weeple Army. And I got my registration bib and I went under this tent. And there was about 60 people under that tent trying to keep warm. And I just knew that my start time was at 9 a.m. And I was going to, Mike was, uh, Michael was going to race with me, but little did I know, which I still have the photo on my phone, um, about 30 people actually ran with me and, uh, we crutched through the entire course, uh, obstacle by obstacle, little by little. How, how far was the course that day? Uh, about five miles and it rained the whole time. And like I said, it mentioned it was 27 degrees and I, I hadn't ever trained in degrees like that where was I going to train in cold weather? <laughs> and, and so you're, you're out there in your crutches going through mud. You, do you have to climb the eight foot wall? Yes. That? So we're doing, you know, he had taught me to go over walls by using teamwork and, you know, my right leg is the weakest. My left leg is the strongest. So they would push my right leg and I would use my upper body to lift myself up and then turn myself around. Are your arms naturally strong? They naturally have been, but they've really stepped it up the past six years. <laughs> did, did you have to climb ropes that day? Yeah, we climbed ropes. I actually missed that rope climb. I believe that's the second rope climb I've ever missed. Uh, it was just too cold. I was freezing. I was miserable. So when you say you missed it, you couldn't I, get to I the couldn't, top. I could only get halfway. Oh. Yeah. And, and, and then if you can't get up to the top of of the rope, if you can't fulfill an obstacle, you got to get down and do 30 burpees, 30 burpees, which Mm -hmm. I don't know if everybody knows what a burpee is. (laughs) So you basically, it's like a push up, quick jump up and. uh, And then down again. And then back down again to do 30 of those. It's um, I think I was just so tired and cold. I think Mike, Michael and I split the burpees and went on to the next obstacle. And, um, yeah, again, it brought me back. It really showed me teamwork on a whole great, on a different scale that I'd ever known. What is it like finishing that event? I was so happy that I had just completed and, uh, and participated in such an event that just brought me to an uncomfortability, which led to realizing that I was stronger than I had ever imagined. Here's the thing that I'm just trying to grip because it seems like when you talk about uncomfortability and going to these places that people would just want to be in a warm living room, they seem to inspire you to drive yourself further. I don't, I think even from a very young, young age, even birth, let's go that far back, I was uncomfortable. You've always been uncomfortable. I I think I've always been in in an uncomfortable place. But I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't seem like you're looking for comfortability. It seems like you're looking for even more (laughs) uncomfortability in order to feel comfortable. (laughs) I think I've been able to handle it and I've been able to just kind of push through and get to a comfortable place and the uncomfortability. But then I sit there for too long and I get antsy. So I want to challenge myself and get uncomfortable again. And then 
it goes to what, eight miles when you go from a, what they call a sprint at Spartan. I think that's three miles. Or, no, three or to so. four miles, three yeah, to four give miles. or take. And then it turns into a super, right? Yeah. So, you know, I completed that race and I wanted to do it again, even though it was completely uncomfortable and miserable. How far is so, a super? A super is about eight or nine miles. And where did you do your first super? Ooh, um, that I cannot remember off the top of my head. I want to say, uh, you know what? No, I can't. Temecula. Temecula was my first super and my first beast. And, and then the beast is on top of the super. And yep. then how far is that? The beast is anywhere from 12 to 15 miles. Okay. But people got to understand that it's not like you're just out running on a nice day on flat terrain. You're going up and down mountains uh, and you're just constantly bumping into these obstacles, which are draining your energy, making it more and more uncomfortable for you. Is there a point where you reached your limits of uncomfortability? Um, in my running career, absolutely. Uh, in the beginning, no. Um, I was tired, absolutely. Um, but I had support. My team was huge and they weren't going to let me go back. They were going to only let me go forward. It took me about, uh, I think a beast took me about 12 hours, 11 or 12 hours to accomplish. Does it boil down to just taking the next step? My trainer, uh, Michael, always would tell me, he'd be like, don't focus, focus on something that is ahead of you. So I would look at a stop sign and I'd be like, okay, Misty, just make it to that stop sign. And then when I got to that stop sign, I'd be like, okay, Misty, make it to that house on the corner. And I would just break it down. I would never be like, oh, seven more miles. Oh my God. Okay. Seven more miles is how far? And that's how like, I think. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> what is it like after you're running these races and people are observing you, they want to run with you? Uh, what's it like to start being known for being a little misty and it's like you're becoming a little bit of a celebrity. It's crazy. Cause when I, when I was growing up, I was always invited last to be on the dodgeball team. And if I, you know, I ran, uh, I participated, I guess I ran, I scooted, I walked, whatever, uh, uh, adaptive track, which we had at one of the schools. And, um, I was never picked first. Uh, I was always picked last and here I am in a situation where, you know, I completed these races and, you know, I'm climbing these mountains and I'm making it to the top, you know, this obstacle and I'm meeting an amazing fitness community along the way. And people are starting to say, hi, Misty. Hey, Misty. When's your next race, Misty? Do you have a team, Misty? And I just thought, wow, you want this turtle, <laughs> this turtle elite, so to speak, to join and be a part of your team. Like, wow. How does that make you feel like going from your days of elementary school when, when people are pushing you away yeah. to people now wanting to be near you? I was feeling accepted. I was feeling that people were seeing my efforts and my, that I wanted they were seeing my efforts and they weren't looking at my disability. They weren't taking that into consideration at all if, when they invited me a part, to be a part of their team. And what about people who are not fitness people, 
but people who, because of the internet, now know about you. Yeah. And maybe they have a child with spina bifida. Do they want to connect with you? So I have been extremely blessed and in gratitude. And, you know, that's pretty much what fuels me today is, is gratitude because of those situations. And the situations I'm talking about is, uh, this is just one example. When I ran my first half marathon, uh, before I got into Spartan race, uh, Spartan racing, I had a family rent a car in New York who had been following me on Instagram and they have a little boy who has spina bifida and they rented this car and they showed up at mile six and the little boy was in the back seat, just clapping and cheering. And, um, they showed up at my race and I had literally crossed the finish line and they introduced themselves to me and they said, we've been following you and we just want to let you know that we, we see all of your efforts and you give us so much hope that our little boy is going to be able to be in, you know, play soccer if he wants to, uh, you know, work a normal job if he wants to. And that was my first realization that, wow, something is being created that is greater than what I've ever imagined. That was like the first sign that I need to continue to do what I'm doing because I'm helping not just, you know, friends who have children or who have spina bifida, but I'm helping people who are literally starting from the couch to just simply walking to the mailbox. And in that moment, I just thought, I've got to do this again. I don't know how, but I've got to figure out a way. And ever since then, I, I haven't stopped. How many races have you done? I've done over 180 all over the world. I did one in Japan last year, which was amazing. Um, I hold three Spartan adaptive athlete records, and I hold Red Bull 400 record. Do you forget and that you're disabled sometimes? My first race ever, I never once, because somebody asked me, well, when you ran your first race ever, didn't you know that you had crutches? Like, how did you train with crutches? And I said, well, that's all I know how to do. Like, well, you just run. It never once ever crossed my mind that if I was going to do a Spartan race, that it was going to get stuck in mud and I would get a need. I remember being in Hawaii, you know, being the first adaptive athlete to earn a trifecta in two days, which was about 15, 14 to 15 hours race day each day. So that means you ran a sprint, which is like three to four miles, a super, which is about eight miles, and then a beast. Yeah, I did it in two days. Which is like 13 or 14 yeah. miles. You did all three of them in two days. Yes. I never once thought, oh, my crutches are going to get stuck. I Like I mentioned, I, I remember being in Hawaii, and it was actually... The race was actually on the actual grounds of Jurassic Park. And I thought, what am I doing with my life? I'm looking up, my crutches are stuck, and I'm looking at an actual replica of a dinosaur. And my crutches are literally so stuck that I need help because it's taking me with it. So two or three people on the course stopped their race to help me get my crutches out. But it was teamwork that helped me continue to move forward and to accomplish that. Well... Pretty soon I'm going to start my Spartan race and uh, I may need you to pull me out of the mud. <laughs> we'll see what happens. I gotcha. Well, I thought that was the most appropriate way to end the talk with little Misty. The conversation went on a little longer, but I love those last words. 
I'm just going to bring up one point that little Misty gave to me as the conversation continued, and that is going back to basics. This whole Spartan adventure has made me rethink the way I eat, the times that I eat, and it really is a good way to look at difficulties that you're having because when you step back, you're able to rechart your course once it's reimagined and take yourself to a better place. So whatever your issue is, if you got one, we all do, take a step back, go to basics, see what happens. Next week, I hope you're going to be hearing the voice of Larry King, if not the week after, but I hope it's next week. We got a lot of great guests lined up for season two. So thank you for coming on the journey. And one last word from the people who bring it to you. Squarespace. And all you got to do is go to calfussman.com to see what I'm talking about because Squarespace has made me feel at the top of the world on the internet. I'm an old school kind of guy, but when I look at calfussman.com, feel like a new man. So see how the photos pop. Look at how crisp and clean the copy is. And go to squarespace.com, use the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and you're going to get 10% off your next domain name or website. And ZipRecruiter. If you need to hire, this is the place to go. ZipRecruiter.com. All you got to do is type in your job description, and with a single click, you're going to get the talent you need within 24 hours. Type in ZipRecruiter.com backslash Fussman, and you're going to get a free trial. It doesn't get any better than that. The hire you just made may be life-changing. ZipRecruiter. See you next week. Cheers.